So I'd like to say good morning to everyone um, before we go any further. Um, welcome to the second Futures Entertainment Conference. Um, I'll just turn my cell phone off so no one calls me during this, which probably wouldn't be appropriate. Um, thank you for coming out on a rainy day uh, in, in Cambridge and, and, and coming down for the conference. We're looking forward to what will hopefully be a, a fairly stimulating event. Uh, what is, is particularly unique about this conference is that it draws together a range of academic and, and industry speakers, um, as well as putting them together on a table and forcing them to have a discussion, basically. So the emphasis uh, at this event is not on a kind of a pitch or a prepared presentation, but rather on, on conducting a, a conversation, which is why we run fairly long panels. Um, and, and we open with a, a, a managed conversation here at the table and then open it up to the crowd later on. Um, my name is Joshua Green. I'm the, the research manager for the Convergence Culture Consortium. Uh, along with the Comparative Media Studies program, we, we co-host um, uh, this event. And uh, I'd just like to introduce Henry Jenkins, who's going to do opening remarks with me. This is Henry sitting here at the table. Um, <laughs> You're also kind. Uh, Henry, did you want to say a single, a, a, a single, a few words? So, I don't know whether Henry can say a single word. Yeah, a few I, words I, about I, CMS. I physically possible. <laughs> uh, so Comparative Media Studies, one of your two host programs, uh, is hosted in the Humanities, Arts, and Social Sciences School here at MIT. And we're really trying to train the next generation of leaders for industry, for journalism, for arts, for education to think systematically about media change. It's a program designed to teach kids to teach, think across media, across national borders, across historical periods, across disciplines, and across that gaping divide between the ivory tower and the rest of the world. And that's why we're happy to be part of sponsoring uh, this conference. Thanks. And the, the, the consortium is a, I'm getting bad things from over there. The consortium is a research program that works um, within CMS, uh, particularly to work with industry. So we partner with a range of people, including Turner, uh, Turner Broadcasting, uh, Fidelity Investments, Yahoo, GSDNM Idea City, and MTV Networks. And together, we all kind of get together and work out what's unfolding and what are the implications of the changes and how can we best work out how to navigate them. And so that's sort of our interest in pulling together this event. Um, before we go any further, I want to just do a little plug. Um, I've been working with, with Drew Harry uh, in the Media Lab um, to try and address some of the challenges that come when you run uh, large events like this that are multi-sided, um, and also uh, to bring together events that more and more are running in meet space and in virtual space. And to that end, um, what we've put together is, is like an official back channel, if you like, um, which sort of runs counter to some of the ethos behind a back channel that we'll talk that through in a minute. Um, and so it's, it's accessible on, online, and you should all be able to get onto the wireless here at the, at the Media Lab. And what it is is basically a place that will run over here on this, on this right-hand screen for you to post comments throughout the event, for you to pose questions, and also for you, for you to contribute to some sort of discussion by voting the questions up or down. Now, the idea is that once we get to question time, we'll treat it like a third mic. So if you want to post a question throughout the event, that's cool, and we can get it up onto the screen. If you want to get the questions to the top, it'll hopefully get the most pressing questions. Um, to the top of the list so that we, don't, we, we can shortcut working out what those are uh, and move forward. So that's where it's accessible. Um, it's very easy and open. You can just type your name in and your affiliation and off you go. Please don't spam the list. Um, please don't use it to ad advertise Viagra, but if you are, please misspell the words, use lots of letters, um, and refer... Actually, I'll hold that last comment. Um, <clears throat> 
So that, that would be super. We'd like to see uh, whether this is going to work. Uh, Drew and I have been working with a number of researchers at different uh, institutions, including Harvard and Emerson. There's a bit of energy at the moment around how we can effectively conduct events across multiple sites that are both virtual and real. So this is incredibly, incredibly beta-ish. And if it's crap, just let us know. Um, it's OK if it sucks. But I'd appreciate if people could have an attempt to see if it's going to work uh, in the very least. Oh yeah, Henry and I are going to deliver some opening comments. Um, and what we thought we'd do uh, was probably start with a cartoon. Yep. No. Do you want to introduce No, go ahead. We'll, we'll... Lights down. Can we just take the lights down a little bit? Maybe, maybe down the other way. <laughs> Your town, USA. Only yesterday, peaceful, quiet, serene, a picture of complete tranquility. And then, overnight, it happened. <laughs> television. But with television came problems. Eye strain. Image distortion. <laughs> and picture jumping. But these problems will be completely eliminated in your television set of tomorrow. No more dragging Dad away from the set for dinner. modern solution. Actually, the home of tomorrow will be built around the television set. This advanced model automatically eliminates picture distortion from passing airplanes. However, it does clutter up the living room. Remember those umpteen billion control knobs? Tomorrow's set. One simple knob. <laughs> A set for people who squint. For people who drink water. And for people who smoke. And speaking of people, do you realize four out of five people now own television sets? This model clears up those dim, fuzzy... So, uh, in, what you saw was the beginning of Tex Avery's film, TV of Tomorrow. And uh, if anyone wants to see the rest of it, might I recommend that it's available, playing somewhere near you on YouTube, uh, even as we speak. Uh, we wanted to begin there because uh, we're going to talk a lot this weekend about the future of entertainment. Um, it's a well-known fact that as an MIT professor, I was issued a crystal ball when I signed up my, my faculty card. And as a result, MIT prognosticates about the future rather a lot. Uh, but the reality is that we're probably no more likely to arrive at the correct answer for where the future is leading us than Tex Avery did in spoofing this, yet we look back at this 50, 1953 cartoon and we see a number of trends uh, that we recognize down to today, both 
the challenges of simplifying the technology and, and the, the sort of expectations that the public will be able to understand how to use a new medium as it's introduced into their home. We can begin to see examples of customization and personalization, almost immediately specialized devices for special users or special uses. Uh, we can see the disruption of ordinary social life and its reconfiguration in response to the media. And if we continue the cartoon, we'd see a variety of schemes for interacting with the television set, including, if you see the picture up there, there's a, a guy who can fish from the privacy of his own office, uh, reminding us a little bit of some of the pitches being made for the Wii Remote at the present time. Uh, this is a gaming system. In this case, you get to pull a slot machine device and determine whether, which channel you get to watch. Uh, so that the idea of games and television is there from the very beginning, uh, at least in the popular imagination. So throughout the talk this morning, we're going to see a few other retro examples of people's attempts to imagine the future of the entertainment medium. We very carefully have called this conference the futures of entertainment because we think that all of the trends we're looking at will lead to multiple futures in multiple directions. And that's, I think, should be the spirit in which we involve ourselves in this conversation. So if we think about uh, uh, Avery's emphasis here on, on interactivity, interactivity has always been promised as, as one of the, the things that television is somewhat lacking. Um, and when we move to current futures, these are currently two of the great ways you can get yourself into television. Um, the, the one on, on, on your left is, is a relatively old VR system. Um, but the one on the right, if you believe it or not, is actually a system that was invented last year. And as near as I can tell, that is actually a CRT monitor stuck on the back of her head. <laughs> and I'm not sure that occupational health and safety would enjoy that, but it is one way for you to, for you to participate and for you to engage in the television, in the television uh, kind of experience, which seems to be one of the things that's generally seem to be lacking from television, which is funny because one of the, the most successful things that's happened in the last six months has been this opportunity for interactive television. Um, you know, where the television content and the television program participating within the text is pushed beyond the television set and made interactive by its appropriation by, by other platforms and, and other forms. And if I just don't go too quickly, um, we can see, I mean, one of the interesting things about the Simpsons campaign was that it provided people with uh, the opportunity to get personally involved in the program by uploading a photo that would then render yourself as a, as a Simpsons character. Aggregating just a, just a few of them demonstrates there's actually fairly few models. Um, so even though you were getting something that, based on the photo that you <coughs> uploaded into the system, was a representation of yourself, we're actually just going back and, and selling people the same service and calling it personalization. Um, but where they, they really pushed this idea of interaction um, with the television space was through the Quickie Mart promotion, um, where they took 7-Elevens and, and rebranded them as, as Quickie Marts and push the, the television text out into the real world rather than asking people necessarily to, to, be, uh, to come into the television world and dealing with the, the technological constraints um, of interaction in a television space when you're dealing fundamentally with, with a screen. So, and we've seen this extension of the television text into virtual worlds uh, with the recent CSI campaign that took advantage of Second Life so that the television series episode didn't end on television, but in fact, people have been encouraged for several weeks to rummage around in Second Life to gather their own clues, to, to, to have their own interactive experience, uh, which may eventually feed back into the CSI text on TV. This notion of expanding what the television set does is also marked by the success of the Wii Remote, which is probably the most important new interface we've seen in the game space 
in a long, long time. And we discovered that it wasn't necessarily high-end graphics, but it was changing the mode of interactivity that excited users about the future of gaming. And this, uh, the Wii Remote concept, which of course took off this idea of influencing um, uh, what was happening in the game by physically moving your body, and it was uh, appropriated by, by MSNBC for this Newsbreaker game. Now, the Newsbreaker game in and of itself was interesting because it, it was an attempt to make news in some way an interactive game space. Um, and creating a brick out or a block out that you then bounce the ball around in order to collect the top news stories probably doesn't seem like it's that compelling an experience, but at least it's playfulness with the content. I suppose that's, that's what we can, we can say for it. What was especially interesting, however, was they took it down to the launch of Spider-Man, and they set up giant Wii-style uh, interactive events, where they played it on a large screen, and they got the entire crowd to, to, to play uh, with the game as if they were the remote. Um, and this, this, the Wii has really challenged the way that we understand and experience games because since the Wii, it's become a, a quite a, a definite divide between does it provide you some kind of innovative interactivity um, in terms of the way that you engage with the set itself or is it high-end graphics? Uh, well, we're still seeing classic game successes. Uh, the, one of the big news stories in recent weeks has been the degree to which Halo 3 not only has broken box office records for the launch of a video game, but in fact challenge the top money earners of the year in terms of Hollywood entertainment. And while Halo 3 isn't as, uh, say, narratively complex as something like Bioshock, and it's certainly been, been, uh, been criticized for perhaps not being uh, particularly narratively complex, I think that uh, it does push the idea of serious gaming or, or the significance of video games, particularly when we look at the, at the ad campaign that's in a couple of stills on the left-hand side. This was a somewhat controversial uh, campaign. They constructed a very large diorama for Halo that is currently touring, touring the country. Um, and this diorama, um, and I know there's another better word for it, but I can't think what it is because I'm not a model maker. Um, but this, this diorama celebrated or, or recorded the final fight. Um, and it tours around as a museum piece. And they produced a series uh, one commercial that featured a, a future vet from the current war reflecting BBC documentary style on what it was like to experience this war that had never happened. And I actually think that's perfectly legitimate um, because all they're doing is, is a video game version of Saving Private Ryan. But it, the tugging on heartstrings for what was only a video game became quite controversial as a way to advertise um, what was seen as, unfortunately, is still seen as a fairly derided medium. So we, we began last night, our, our conference last night, with a discussion with the producers of Heroes, uh, Jesse Alexander, Mark Orshaw. And Heroes might be seen as the television text at the moment, which most fully embodies all of the transformations that are taking place in television entertainment. It really it represents television not as an appointment medium, but as an engagement medium, a, a, a large-scale serial that unfolds across multiple media, that takes advantage of all the new media platforms, and which blurs the line between cult media and mainstream media, a theme that we're going to explore rather a lot. Here is just an example of that embedding of transmedia content in Heroes, the, the Ninth Wonder comic in the, in, in the episodes, which has very strong narrative function, including both foreshadowing and backstory within the television show, led people to the Ninth Wonder website, uh, which is where large numbers of comics were, were published. And now the book version of that, the Heroes comics, with a beautiful uh, cover by Alex Ross, uh, is... Uh, is, is come out, and if you look at that book, it both takes some minor secondary characters, 
flushes them out in great, greater depth. It provides, it helps us to understand who the new characters were as they're introduced. It provides key pieces of backstory that uh, wouldn't necessarily be on the air, but enhance or expand the experience of the viewer as they watch the television show. This is part of a larger trend in which television and comics have been working together over the last year in particular. Uh, Josh Whedon continued the Buffy series explicitly naming uh, the current crop of comics as a season of the television show, not as a spin-off, not as an ancillary product, but as a central part of extending that text after its cancellation. Supernatural is using comics to do, go back in time and flesh out some of the events that took place before the series started. And Battlestar Galactica has been a very successful comic series that tells some of the many stories uh, that, are, that are not necessarily able to be filmed easily and put on the television screen. Uh, this idea of extension extends to the world of transmedia branding as well. And our poster child for that is the Geico Caveman, who managed to go from a television campaign to a variety of immersive web experiences and into his own sitcom as of, as of this fall, sort of suggesting the ways in which characters can migrate across the converged mediascape and take on new significance and add different audiences and different media experiences. Which brings us around, I think, to start talking quite explicitly about, uh, about advertising itself. Um, and I just wanted to run a little clip um, from... Kind of a road diverges in the desert. Lexus. The road you're on, John Anderton, is the one less John Anderton. Looming large over the future of, of, of advertising and media in, in, interaction is this, this idea of personalization and the ability to target individual, uh, individual consumers, if you like. And it was that clip or the ad from Comcast where they throw a bucket of paint at someone. Um, if anyone's seen it, it's atrocious. Don't go and watch it. And when you see it, throw something. No. Um, <clears throat> it's, it's interesting that we're starting to get to that level of granularity. We've seen a, a significant shake-up in the way that we measure and account for audiences down to smaller and smaller numbers, which has been somewhat of a mixed blessing. Um, because it's, it's great that we can now do these things, but it draws into question a lot of the, the fundamentals uh, about which uh, audiences uh, have been understood and the industry has been organised um, accordingly. And when we talk about personalization, Facebook and, and particularly the social networking space is at the moment at the forefront of, of personalized advertising. Um, Facebook, as of about two weeks ago, uh, started to sell targeted ad <laughs> campaigns um, specifically based on, on profiles. Um, <clears throat> And also, we had this, this controversy uh, uh, about a month and a bit ago where Rapleaf, uh, you know, a, a data aggregation company, was aggregating a lot of personal, uh, publicly accessible data and whilst not necessarily identifying people, it was certainly constructing profiles. And this, I think, struck at, um, it, it certainly struck a chord with people who were using these spaces. It was seen as inappropriate despite the fact that, that all of these details were, putting, were being put out into the public. Um, you know, the idea that they would be aggregated and, and draw, drawn together in order to, to target someone specifically didn't kind of sit right with the economy uh, in which uh, people were participating. 
But what, what makes Facebook such a powerful site is that people are investing themselves deeply in it. And we, if we think in the last year, one of the most powerful examples of social networking was the ways that communities around the country and college students in particular have used sites like Facebook to mourn the shootings at Virginia Tech and to engage in a variety of other civic activities. And Facebook is, is, is emerging, emerging fundamentally as, as a platform that finally we're starting to see some kind of uh, participation in from people other than just, than just the participants. Um, this is a, is a chart from IBM's Many Eyes project that shows the, the largest applications by use on Facebook. Um, and you know, one of the, the rising stars of the last six months has been the widget, um, such that, that it seems to be more appropriate or more useful to build a widget that plugs into a platform like Facebook and access the audience there than necessarily trying to draw the audience to a microsite. And of course, that depends upon, upon the product and the campaign that you're running. But it produces a particular tension, because it requires um, uh, the consumer relationship to be glad-handed and, and to be shared and managed by, by two participants. And this, of course, was not something that NBC was necessarily happy about uh, in their relationship with, with iTunes. Um, and NBC ultimately broke up with iTunes recently and started a relationship with, with Amazon Unbox. Um, now, the relationship with Unbox is a, a, an interesting one. It allows NBC more control over the way that they deliver content, perhaps, um, to their consumers. But it requires the production of a different, uh, a different platform for distribution, building on the, black, on the back, obviously, of, a, of Amazon's good work as an online marketplace. But still, we're moving away from the device advantage that something like iTunes provides. Amazon, uh, NBC also, at the moment, really, really loves Hulu, which is good. And that's also something that Fox loves. And that's good. And what's interesting about Hulu is that it's something that it might start sharing the love with other people. So there was an announcement two weeks ago that, that Hulu uh, will point people towards content that's produced not by NBC and Fox. Um, and I think that this is an interesting development, that content's not available at the moment via Hulu. But it signals a particular attempt um, by the networks to establish Hulu as some sort of an effective alternative. And I think we're moving away from the idea that it's just a platform that runs on the internet, and that instead it might be setting up as, as, as either, I mean, I, I was discussing last night something like a channel, although Jason Mattel suggested perhaps we should be thinking about it as a, a kind of a cable MSO or something. Um, and so we're seeing a, a determined attempt on the part of NBC, not just to deliver content online, but to build an effective service that capitalizes on online uh, ability, but is also somewhat closed and managed. And I think that that is a, a fraught issue and one, um, one that we'll need to work through in the future. Which brings us to the current debate and the issue with the writers. When an author writes a book, they get paid for every copy sold. And a songwriter gets paid every time their song is performed or published. For writers of movies and television, we get paid when one of our shows is played on TV or sold for home video. But this wasn't always true. Imagine how many times you've seen I Love Lucy on TV. That show has run continuously for over 50 years. And guess how much in residuals the writers have been paid? Nothing. That show has earned hundreds of millions of dollars over the years. And the writers never received one dime for all those reruns. But because writers fought for it, we now get paid when studios make money off our work. So now when one of our movies or shows are broadcast on TV, we get paid a residual of 2.5%. In other words, for every dollar the studio gets paid, we get 2.5 cents. Back in the 80s, when home video was just starting out, the studios asked the writers to take a cut on their pay in order to help grow the fledgling market. Eager to expand the business, we agree to cut our residuals on video cassettes by 
This was done with the understanding that once home video was a healthy market, the studios would give back what we had given up. But over 20 years have passed. While VHS has led to DVD, sales have soared. But our 80% pay cut has remained the same. So, when you go into a store and pay $19.99 for a DVD, we get a whopping four cents. And then came the internet. Services such as iTunes and Amazon's Unbox have allowed studios to digitally distribute their products more efficiently than ever. No manufacturing costs, no shipping costs, no need to warehouse physical product at all. But the studios want to pay us the DVD rate on these downloads despite the cost savings. And with websites such as NBC.com and Hulu, viewers can watch entire episodes of their favorite TV shows for free. And even though the studios sell ads and earn money off these shows, estimated to bring in $4.6 billion over the next three years, they are refusing to pay the writers any residuals at all. And why? They claim it's for promotional purposes only. If the studios have their way, the 80% cut will not only apply to downloads, 100% pay cut will apply to streaming video too. And it's not only writers this affects. Actors, directors, and crew members also rely on residuals to pay the bills and fund their health and pension programs. So what happens if sometime in the near future, television and the internet converge and become one? The studios will no doubt refuse to pay anything but the internet rates, causing us to forever lose 80% of our royalty payments, if not all of it. So what are we asking? It's pretty simple. We want the DVD rate to finally go up after 22 years. This is your 1999 DVD. This is what we get, our four cents. And this is what we want, four more cents. And when our shows get played over the internet, we want to get paid the same rate as if we were on TV. Because 48% of Writers Guild members are unemployed at any time, residuals are more than just extra cash. They are a lifesaver, allowing writers in financial straits to keep from losing their house or losing health insurance. This is why we need your support, so that the future doesn't look like the past. So one of the striking things about this video, one of the striking things about this video is the degree to which YouTube is being used effectively as a channel by the Writers Guild to reach large percentages of the public, anticipating probably rightly that network news is not necessarily going to give total fair coverage <laughs> of a strike against them. Uh, so that I th and I, th and I think this is an interesting example of how YouTube has emerged as an absolutely central alternative communication channel uh, for the American public at the present time. Uh, so the YouTube, though, also becomes emblematic of some of the contradictions in the ways in which the entertainment industry is thinking about this moment of, of do-it-yourself media of Web 2.0. On the one hand here, we see the image of Colbert, who in some ways is the, the, is the entertainer who best understands, whose production company best understands the world, the audience, lives in in the Web 2.0 era. Uh, indeed, so much so that I've been arguing that, he, that the Colbert Show and The Daily Show should be treated as essential industries during the strike so that we get vital information out to people. Uh, it, uh, but uh, it, I, I certainly wonder about going into an election year where many of my students get most of their information about the world through Daily Show and Colbert, which lay silent at the present time, how long that effect is, and what that effect could be on the next election cycle. 
But what's interesting about Colbert, we have at the top the Washington Press Club dinner, which is one of the moments which really cemented Colbert's awareness of Colbert in the American public. This was an event that was theoretically aired on C-SPAN, but I doubt very many of us in this room saw it on C-SPAN. We saw it through YouTube. We saw it through illegal downloads. Uh, it's now, in fact, on iTunes, the top-selling book on tape uh, is the recording of the Washington Press Corps dinner. It was an event not covered by the, the mainstream news or covered in a dismissive way. We've seen Colbert do things like having green screen contest and remix contest. We've seen him engage in a playful warfare with Wikipedia in which he urged people to go on Wikipedia and change the definition of elephant. And Jimmy Wales, uh, the visionary of Wikipedia, told me that he, he had had to organize large numbers of Wikipedians to protect the integrity of the information. And so Colbert fans were changing in one direction. Wikipedians were changing it back as fast as they could and a war for over-information. Yet, that didn't slow down the, the production company and the networks from yanking Colbert's content off YouTube uh, once YouTube got acquired by Google. And so we've seen this sort of strange tension where much of the logic of the show pushes for that stuff to spread across the media platform for people to be able to remix it and engage with it in an active way, and yet studio, uh, the policies around it, the economic and legal policies around it, seek to clamp down on that content at the same time. And it suggests the sense of confusion within companies as well as between companies about what the futures of entertainment look like. The same media channel has become more and more central to the political campaigns. And I have here three kind of emblematic moments so far of the campaign. We see the mock-up 1984 ad uh, showing Hillary. Uh, we see the, the, the spoof of The Sopranos, which starred the former president and former first lady of the United States doing a fan parody of a, an HBO show. And we see the Obama girl iconography, which has been one of the things that has actually alerted large numbers of young voters to what's interesting about the Obama campaign. We even saw CNN partner with YouTube for, for a Democratic debate. Um, the Republicans, on the other hand, have refused to have a YouTube debate, with Mitt Romney here from Massachusetts announcing that he will not debate a snowman, referring to a famous video shown during the YouTube debate. And I think we've, I've spent a lot of time lately reflecting on it. I'm writing an essay on why Mitt Romney won't debate a snowman when, in fact, presidential candidates have sent out little girls pulling daisies, packs of wolves, all kinds of cartoon characters for the last 30 years in their address to the American public. So apparently, we're not allowed to use cartoons to talk back, but candidates can use all kinds of silly, silly stuff to speak to us about serious election issues. Uh, the same distribution system is enabling independent filmmakers to get their work seen. Uh, Four, Eyes is an ex Four Eyed Monsters is an example of an independent film which has done screenings on Second Life, which has used the web to publicize its product, and most effectively has created a space on the web where people in a local area can register their desire to see the film. And when they get multiple, several hundred viewers in a potential market, they go to the local exhibitor and say, we can probably guarantee selling out over X number of screenings, will you book our film? And it's been a successful strategy and getting the small independent film in the theaters around, around the country. An example of how the power of Web 2.0 was enabling independent content to move outside of necessarily mainstream entertainment channels. Even more spectacular success story is the story of Soldier Boy, who's been much, we've been spending a lot of time this term in CMS talking about Soldier Boy's rise. A little over a year ago, announced in a blog that he was, a 15-year-old boy announces that he's, that he's going to turn the music era, world on its ear 
you won't believe me now, but you'll believe me later. He's recently performed on the BET Music Awards. His songs open very high on the charts. He did it by enabling do-it-yourself media production, by encouraging people to take his song, crank that, crank that and uh, perform it. And so all through YouTube, you'll see massive numbers of, of amateur-produced videos to the songs that Soldier Boy produced, literally you know, transforming the audience into the major carriers of his message. And he was able to open near the top of the charts because he had such visibility from the bottom up rather than from the top down. Uh, this past month, New York Magazine has featured a series of, uh, a whole series of articles about online video, including one saluting uh, the so-called, uh, the, the female vidding community. Uh, the vidding community is one I've been writing and studying about for almost 16 years now, that are take content from television, uh, re-edit it, add music to it, and create new kinds of expressive works. This used to be done with two VCRs and a patch cord. It's now being done with sophisticated digital editing. And I wanted to share with you the work of Luminosity, which is the video artist that New York Magazine singled out. This is her remix of the film 300.
you agree with me that it's a pretty spectacular work of virtuosity technically regardless of whether it's done by a professional or an amateur as it happens uh, luminosity has done more, more than 30 works of this kind that she's distributed via the web and she's the tip of the iceberg uh, literally of a large number of women artists who have been using this mo this form to create works uh, that are really quite spectacular there's a 20 plus year history of work by this community that some of which will be Played at a Do It Yourself Film Festival event that's being hosted by USC uh, in the early spring, that I think will be the first time that there's been a big public screening of this work at a film festival circuit. Uh, the article the New York wrote about Luminosity begins with the suggestion that she's probably the biggest fan and best friend of television producers, yet she dare not name her name for fear that she'd be sued by them. And the, the, the anxieties about intellectual property that affect an artist like this because she both appropriates content from television and from the music industry, points to some of the challenges of sorting through how we're going to create a more participatory culture around media and a current era where copyright regime gets, where there's a lot of conflicting understandings about how copyright should operate. Uh, if, la if last year was the year that Web 2.0 first really hit the hearts of the American public, that stories like Time, Magazines like Time, Newsweek, and Businessweek really focused on the discourse of Web 2.0 in the idea of user-generated content and participatory culture. I'd argue this is the year where the implicit contradictions, the contradictions the implicit social contract around Web 2.0, it really hit the fan. And we've seen more and more struggles between producers and users, even in Web 2.0 companies. And the story that sort of brought this to light for me was the story of this company, a, a digital Hollywood-based startup called FanLib, that's decided it wanted to build on the, the interest in fan-created art and fan-created fiction to create a Web 2.0 portal that would dis display and distribute this content, put advertisements at the top, and so forth. The problem is that like many other Web 2.0 companies, it acted as if it created the audience rather than cooperated with it. It didn't respect the existing traditions. It didn't understand who these people were. Witness the fact that fan fiction has historically been produced about 90% by women. So this ad up here that shows the movement from an amateur fan fiction to a commercial fan fiction as muscularization and masculinization was maybe misplaced in its address to this particular audience. 
They also assumed that they could put up on the web uh, text for rights holders that described them as, uh, as treating fans like, as with a coloring book, players must stay within the lines, restricted players' terms of service, protect your rights and property, uh, completed work is just the first draft to be polished by the pros, uh, full monitoring and management and submissions and players, a whole apparatus of surveillance, control, regulation, while arguing to the fan community that they were going to protect their rights, stand up to rights holders, ensure the freedom they've always enjoyed outside of the system. The response to this came most heavily from LiveJournal. And LiveJournal is a space where large numbers of fans have produced and distributed their work. And they were able to use LiveJournal to rally and build and push back, build criticism and push back on FanLib pretty effectively. Although by midsummer, LiveJournal itself was cracking down on fan fiction sites, using concerns about obscenity uh, to regulate, again, the content of the work that these fans create. So this past year has seen a series of struggles between Web 2.0 companies and these grassroots fan communities over how much participation is acceptable. Well, almost everyone seems to believe that we're moving toward a more participatory culture, but the terms of participation are precisely what's under negotiation, if not dispute, over the past year. And I think that paves the way for things like our fan labor panel at this conference to talk about some of those issues in a more direct way than I think they've been talked about before. All right, so if we want to think then about where media is at right now, we could do no worse than looking at maybe the major media attacks of the past year, Harry Potter. And Harry Potter is a weird contradiction because on the one hand, it is probably the most mass of mass media text as both a film, a television, uh, both a series of books, a, a film series, now an amusement park attraction, which seems to touch almost everyone on the planet one way or another. The awareness of Harry Potter could not be higher. This comes at a moment when we're hearing most of the analysis, including places like MIT, is that mass media success is going to give way to niche success, long tail success, more fragmentation in the marketplace. We've seen this huge concentration of the market around Harry Potter. And it may be the last gasp, or maybe not, of mass media power. It suggests to us that mass media isn't dead yet, that there's something really powerful in these old forms and these old platforms that we have to pay attention to. Uh, the tension, though, between producing a mass text in a world where there's so many opportunities for participation led to a lot of disputes as the book was coming out, where people got early copies of it, scanned it, put it on the internet, that people were sending spoilers to fans uh, through a variety of platforms. There was an aggressive backlash against the mass media power of Harry Potter, both by people who wanted to read the book early and by people who wanted to spoil the parade for those of us who were eagerly awaiting to read the book in its entirety. My wife and I ended up camping out in our backyard in a hammock, removed from all media, just so we could read the book uh, without having anything spoiled for us. Uh, and I think I know a number of fans who went for the woods like Tarot, just to have a few <laughs> moments of meditation with this book amidst the, the, anti, uh, the, the spoiler hysteria around it. More recently, we've seen this really interesting interface between the world of fans and the world of the publishers, where J.K. Rowling at Carnegie Hall, of all places, out of Dumbledore as a gay character. Right? And, and said it, follow that statement with all oh, the fan fiction that will be written. Now, what, it's a very curious moment because, on the one hand, it seems to authorize fan fiction, acknowledge it as a space of fantasy, celebrate its contributions to the world of Harry Potter. On the other hand, it's J.K. Rowling staking out this rights, even after the book is published, to determine how it's read, how it's interpreted, and to insist on a reading of the book she could have easily written into the book in the first place but didn't have the guts to do. 
And so fans have had very conflicting feelings about this attempt by J.K. Rowling after the book series has been printed to announce a reading of the text, a reading, in fact, many fans had long had, which took away their sense of creative freedom to have created that reading and made it the authorized reading rather than a reading that emerged ground up. And so it points to some of the challenges of thinking about what Harry Potter or any mass media success means in a world of participatory culture. The other story, Harry Potter, would be the story the fans have created. And I have here a variety of images, One folk, some focused on Wizard Rock, which is a form of fan music. Uh, last count, more than 200 Wizard Rock bands were around the country uh, releasing albums, uh, albums that are released and circulated primarily through MySpace and other social network sites. So this is no, there's no attempt by Wizard Rock to go commercial and enjoys large enough success without that uh, the Harry Potter fan podcast are among the most downloaded podcast on the web, competing very successfully with commercial podcasts. Uh, we, we've seen the emergence of an organization called Harry Potter Alliance, which is, starts from the premise that just as kids learn how to read and write from Harry Potter, they should learn how to become activists from Harry Potter. And that, that because the story deals with young people standing up against adult authorities, fighting evil, questioning authority, that the, this same book could be the springboard for, for example, campaigns about Darfur or about child labor around the world or about uh, the, the closing down of local bookstores in favor of chain bookstores. A variety of causes have been connected to the Harry Potter Alliance, but its primary goal is to get young people involved in the process of political change, inspired by, led by, the fantasies that J.K. Rowling had, has created. In the midst of all this bottom-up activity then, it's a scarce surprise that an event like San Diego Comic-Con has emerged as the meeting ground between mass media and participatory culture, both a fan event and an event where Hollywood rolls out new series, new, new films, new comics franchises, new, new book series, that it's become this new games, the center of the one of the centers of the entertainment world, growing, growing importance, huge scale event uh, that you know, a decade or two ago would have just been a geek fest. Now is the place where people go when they want to reach this increasingly influential segment of the audience. Now this has its own precedence. Gene Roddenberry showed the pilot of Star Trek in the 1960s at Worldcon, the, the science fiction convention, before it appeared on the air. And it was a began, so science, Star Trek fandom began before the series even reached the air. And Roddenberry was the pioneer, in a way, of a producer who courted fans and built relationships with them and was able to use that fan following, that sense of audience engagement, to sustain the series over difficult times with the network. Um, so I think we can look at a long history here, but we often have to see the rise of, of Comic-Con as an influence on entertainment as a reflection of this movement of cult, what might have been called cult media, into absolutely the mainstream of the entertainment sector. Uh, okay. Um, <clears throat> no, I wanted to I wanted to round out uh, the, the comments that we've been making today by then visiting a different kind of productivity that that has taken uh, uh, that's risen at the moment as a way of talking about some of some of the uh, the new things that have happened in the mobile space. And I'm really fascinated at at the moment, by <laughs> the way, that craft has experienced a resurgence in the last couple of years um, that I think is attached with the emergence of participatory culture. And so one of the the, the substantial, or I suppose we should have said anticipated responses to the release of, of an object like the iPhone was its rendering um, first as a, as a knitted object. Um, and then as a, as a papercraft object so that you could get yourself an iPhone before they were available or you could just wrap up um, a brick. 
And to return to where we began, and I'm sorry that the audio is very low on this. Dick Tracy is particularly uh, indicative again, oh sorry, is, is, it gives us another model of the future as it was imagined, um, which we're now coming to realise. Because the iPhone in, in many ways gives us that kind of wristwatch television, um, but also the wristwatch communicative device that is significant for navigating landscape. Um, and one of the, the key features of the iPhone, of course, is that it, it, it provides you with, with the real internet, but one of the key uses of that then is, is to locate yourself within space. And this was a, uh, was a map that was produced, um, it was a, a Web 2.0 little thing um, that was set up to track where the best camping spots were so that people could camp out to get a, an iPhone. Um, and the, the iPhone uh, lines were interesting partly because they were so long, but partly also because so many people in those lines were connected and were live blogging in anticipation of being able to live blog from their iPhones once they then got the devices themselves. But they were not, um, they were not marked by all sorts of seriousness this gentleman who was at the top of the line at, uh, at Fifth Avenue didn't actually know what an iPhone was and just lined up because he knew it was time to line up. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that says about the use of technology except that he was often pushed to the forefront as the people waiting in the line for the iPhone, um, even though he's a professional line sitter as opposed to a professional iPhone purchaser. Um, What's very interesting about the iPhone bud is that we have once again um, uh, this combative relationship with, with users. Uh, the phone on the right, I'm sorry, it's, it seems a little bit like this entire event has something to do with NBC, but I, I promise you it doesn't. The phone on, on the right uh, is, is a clip from an NBC Saturday Night Live um, uh, spoof uh, of uh, the iPhone commercials. Now, that little trim there is from Gizmodo, which is a blog, which felt it should report that uh, NBC was using in their Saturday Night Live um, a cracked uh, iPhone. Because of course the iPhone is a, closed, is a closed platform. So they then did some investigating to find out why it was that NBC was doing this, given that it was coming a couple of weeks after the, the well-publicised break um, with, with iTunes. Now it turns out that it has to do with copyright, and when you crack an iPhone you don't have to have AT&T in the shot. And if you don't have AT&T in the shot, then you don't have any kind of issues with, with sponsorship. And so when you crack an iPhone, you can change the, the service provider to unknown at the top. What I think is so interesting is that when you crack an iPhone, you can also end up with a Lego brick. Um, because when, when uh, Apple rolled out the, the second firmware, they bricked a whole lot of iPhones. Now, we saw this uh, uh, combative relationship with users previously with the PSP. Now, the PSP is a wonderful device that time and time again has been... Uh, perhaps mishandled by Sony because they refuse to let the people who own them access the devices themselves. And there's a constant running battle between uh, PSP owners who want to open them up so that they can do interesting things with them and Sony who wants to close them down so that nobody uh, can, well, so that everybody has to pay Sony for access to the device. And we've seen the similar sort of thing happen um, with, with the iPhone, although they are now releasing uh, um, a development kit, I hear. Um, the, re the response to this was something, or, or one of the responses to this was a lot of discussion, a lot of excitement when it emerged that Google was perhaps uh, developing a, a, a platform. Because Google would seem to some extent to be the antithesis 
um, of Apple, given that they were celebrating openness and, and, and everything. They acquired uh, Android. Um, and unfortunately, the Google phone does not look like that, um, which would be cool. Instead, it, it more embodies this kind of openness here, because the Android platform is actually um, uh, partnering with the Open Handset uh, Alliance, where they're trying to build phones that are open and accessible in order to break down uh, both carrier access, but also um, uh, manufacturer um, lockdown. Which brings us to this question of wires. And we're rounding out now. This is one of the last two points that we're going to make today. Um, a couple of months ago, uh, the Skype um, team petitioned the FCC to open up access to handsets under the same ruling um, that anybody who owns a house can attach whatever they want to a phone line um, as long as it doesn't affect the network. And I think that these issues uh, in terms of access uh, to handsets and access to the networks, either from third-party providers um, or from users, are going to become more and more important if we're going to develop a substantial mobile market. We're going to look at that uh, in, in the panel today. What was interesting, I think, about, uh, especially interesting and useful about, about the iPhone and about um, uh, their partnership with AT&T, about some of the things we've been seeing in the mobile market lately, is that it's reinvigorated the argument for net neutrality, which kind of slipped off the agenda uh, earlier in the year after being a really hot-button issue uh, towards the end of last year. Net neutrality kind of slid. And I actually think that some of the excitement about what can and can't be done with the iPhone has managed to push that back on the agenda. And I think it's still something that needs to be discussed because it's not something that we've resolved yet. Hey, did you have a point about net neutrality? Uh, no, I, 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 think, I think we'll finish up <laughs> just to say that we hope that we've sparked some controversy. We've hit some hot buttons in the entertainment world over the last year since the Futures of Entertainment conference last year. And we hope that these are topics that will feed through the discussions we have over the next couple of days. That they, they sort of point to the ferment, the churn, the chaos, the excitement that represents the current moment of media transition. So that's us. Um, I'd like to invite the, the, the speakers for the first panel to, <coughs> to come and take their seats. And also anyone who needs to, to move down and get a seat to, to have a seat. <coughs>